0: And we're going to look at Isaiah's prophecy once again, chapter 9 this morning. I'd like to have you turn to it if you can. I know it'll be on the screen, but it's always helpful as we go through the text on Lord's Day mornings. If you can have your eyes on a copy of the Word to be able to look at the, the verses before and after and see what's in the text around it. So if you're using a house Bible, once again, it's on page 573. Isaiah chapter 9. If we have eyes to see, sometimes we may learn a sobering lesson from the downfall of another. And such was the sobering case with the northern kingdom of Israel also known as Ephraim or Samaria. During Isaiah's ministry, that kingdom suffered their ultimate demise under the judgment of God. It happened in the year 722 B.C., years leading up to that, at the hand of the great empire of Assyria. That nation came into Israel, into Samaria, Ephraim, and destroyed scores of their walled cities, killed hundreds of thousands of their inhabitants, and carried away as captives most of the rest of the people of that place. But there's actually a long history leading up to that point of repeated warnings from God, of repeated chastisement and discipline at the hand of the Lord, all of which fell on deaf ears. Isaiah's preaching before that epic date and after it was meant to be one of those warnings. A warning, first of all, to the people of Israel, before the fact. A warning to Judah in the south, who was quickly following in her sister's footsteps, as it were. Just a little ways behind them in ungodliness and wickedness. And then through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, this passage is meant to be, by our Lord, a warning for us for you and for me. A warning against despising the discipline of the Lord. Before we begin to read this text together, and I'm just going to make comments as we go through it, I want to point out to you the structure of it. The structure is part of what's driving the whole point. So, chapter 9, verses 8 through chapter 10, verse 4, is a coherent section, a kind of literary and poetic unit. And you can see that it actually begins and ends with the same exact verb. It's kind of bookended by the use of this term. Chapter 9, verse 8 says it this way, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And then at the end, in chapter 10, verse 4, we read, nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or to fall among the slain. This book ended term makes really kind of the big point of this passage, which is that if Israel rejected the repeated chastisement of the Lord, then his word of judgment would fall upon them and there would be nothing left, but that they would fall. They would fall under his judgment and be utterly consumed. Now, this unit of scripture is also, um, uh, it, it also has four subsections. And I want to point those out to you. There's Chapter 9, beginning of verse 8, the beginning of our text, down to verse 17, or excuse me, to verse 12 is the first one. And then from verses 13 to 17. Then from 18 to 27, the end of the chapter. And then finally, the first four verses of chapter 5 are a section. If you have an ESV Bible or some other Bibles, they might be grouped just that way. And each of these sections, each of these subsections actually does two important things. First, Each section describes Israel's continued dismissal, rejection of God's discipline. God disciplines them and they persist, they dismiss it, they harden their hearts, and each one speaks of that. And then secondly, each of these sections describes the Lord's continued chastisement of them in response to their hardness of heart. And each of them ends with this same refrain. I want you to take a look. In fact, you might even mark this in your Bible so that it will stand out as kind of the recurring point of this passage. Chapter 9, verse 12. Look at the end of verse 12. For all this, for all that the Lord had done, for all that He had already brought upon them, His anger has not turned away, And his hand is stretched out still, right? Look again at the end of verse 17. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The end of verse 21. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. And then all the way down to the chapter 10 and verse 4. At the end of that verse, the end of this section, for all this, after all of this, they're still persisting in their sin. And His anger is not turned away. And His hand of judgment is stretched out still. Friends, the lesson this morning is this. That people who are dismissive of God's chastening, people who are embittered at God's discipline, people who reject His warnings, may receive from the Lord more and more and more judgment until they are finally just broken. Either broken in humble repentance or broken in utter desolation as is what happened with the people of Israel. Only oh, that God would give us humble hearts under the chastening hand of our Lord. Let's look at the first section here, which begins in verse 8, and it begins with a reminder of all of God's warnings Verse 8, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. And of course, the Lord had sent His word. He had sent many words of warning to the people of Israel. Words of discipline and correction. Not only through the prophet Isaiah, who certainly brought his word to those people, but all the way back. You think even hundreds of years earlier with with Elijah and Elisha who ministered to those people. You remember that Elijah called those people in his day who by and large had turned their backs on the Lord God of heaven and earth and had turned to the idols of their culture and he called them to the mountain and he said, you need to choose today who, really, who you really believe is God. You need to decide once and for all, why do you go limping back and forth between two opinions? If God is God, then serve Him. And if Baal is God, serve Him. And I wonder if I'm speaking to somebody this morning whose heart is kind of torn like that. and You claim the name of Christ perhaps. But the decisions that you make you're making and the way that you're living and the way that your heart is oriented to God right now is, is anything but in keeping with the way that a Christian thinks about God and lives. It's time to choose, right? It's time to choose to say, "If God is God, then I'm going to serve God." Today is the day for a decision. Today's the day of salvation. And for, for 40 long years leading up to the final demise of these people, God had sent them prophet after prophet to proclaim His word to them, to proclaim His word of chastening and judgment and discipline upon them. He sent to them Hosea and Amos and the word of Micah that went to them. And yet they kept on closing their ears and closing their hearts to what God had to say. I just wonder, you know, 40 years, that's a long time to hear the Word of God and harden your heart, isn't it? How long have you heard sermons through the course of your life, I wonder? How many sermons have you heard? How many words of warning from the Lord God Almighty have gone into your ears? And have they yet made it their way into your heart? have you yet to receive really be broken under the word of the almighty god have you yet come to see how trustworthy how faithful he is to all who throw themselves at his feet how merciful he is to them how much greater judgment do you think these people faced and in fact how much greater judgment might might we face who have heard so much of His word, to whom the word of the Lord had come, if the, if the Lord brought His judgment on the wickedness of the Canaanite peoples who had much less of His revelation, then how much more for those who have heard a word from His own mouth. That was the state of these people. And in each of these sections, we see how Israel hardened their hearts against God's chastening hand. Verse 9, follow again in the text. Verse 9, he says, And all the people will know. They will know that God's word is sure, that His discipline will stand. They will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, they will know. And yet, here's their response, the end of verse 9. And they say in pride and in arrogance of their heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in its place. Right? They had experienced the chastening and the discipline of the Lord the the reference to the bricks falling down, maybe it's just a metaphorical reference to God's judgment, or maybe it's even a more specific reference to the prophet Amos who predicted that God would speak out of heaven, as it were, and bring a great earthquake on their land as a, a consequence of their rebellion against him. And and, and so the bricks had fallen, their, their their world was falling apart, and yet they made it through, right? uh the, the 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 earthquake stopped the ground quit shaking and in the moment that they said oh god help us in the next moment they were saying you know what <laughs> we survived it wasn't that bad <laughs> we made it yeah god god caused the bricks to fall down but we'll build up with nicer things the sycamore was cut down but we'll plant cedars maybe maybe god has maybe god is right now bringing some chastening work in your life or you've come through a period of his discipline and you're tempted to say right now on the other side of it you're tempted to say oh you know i survived it wasn't that bad i guess i guess i'll just keep on going just just keep going the way i was only only You know, better. The the temptation is, and this here's the, the way these people responded, right? There was a kind of a breezy dismissal, an arrogant dismissal of the chastenings of God that were meant to be a warning, the kind of first pre shocks of the great earthquake that was to come if they would not repent of their sin. But instead, they brushed it off. Ha! wasn't so bad. guess I'll be alright. God forbid that any of us should say that about the work of God in our hearts. Now in each section, each one of these sections, we also see God meeting their rejection of His discipline with more discipline. And so verse eleven. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him. Rezin was the compatriot of Israel. And he stirs up his enemies, namely Assyria and her army. And then he says verse 12, the Syrians on the east, which are supposedly Israel's ally, and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. In other words, both their friends and their enemies turned against them in the end. Chewed them up and spit them out. And verse 12, the end of the verse, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand, his hand... Of judgment is stretched out still, which recalls Moses and the Exodus, right? And in that place, twenty-eight times the Scripture says that the Lord or Moses stretched out his hand, and what happened every time God stretched out his hand? Judgment, right? A plague upon those sinful people. God stretching out his hand and his rod brought about a judgment, but what happened? The, in the middle of the judgment, sometimes the Pharaoh said what? Oh, take it away and I'll let the people go. Remember that? And when the plague went away, he said, you know what? Huh, it wasn't so bad. Yeah. We quickly forget the chastening hand of God, what He's trying to accomplish in our lives the repentance that he's trying to bring, we quickly get back to life as normal. And so what happens? The hand was stretched out still. Again and again, Moses stretched out his hand and God brought judgment after judgment, discipline, chastening after chastening upon those people. Maybe someone here knows what it's like to be under the outstretched hand of God's discipline and to find that it is still stretched out. And even still. And even still. And friend, the Lord has a purpose in all of that. How long will you go on in your sin and not yield to the Lord? How long will you fight against God? How long will you harden your heart and continue to bring this suffering upon yourself? In the second section of this text, we see another way that these people hardened their hearts against God's chastening. Verse 13. The people, you see it? The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. I want to tell you, the only way to flee from God's wrath is to flee to God's mercy, right? That's the way you get away from God. Flee, you run to him. And it seems so Hard for so many people, it's, it's exactly God's intention in His discipline that we turn to Him, that we run to Him, that we inquire of Him, that we call upon Him, that we pray to Him. And yet so often we are tempted to respond in exactly the opposite way. Like a child, a wayward child who is disciplined by his parents And he decides he's going to run away from home. And he runs exactly in the opposite direction of the people who love him most in all of the world. And you say, what is wrong with you? Right? Well, friends, what is wrong with us when God brings His chastening hand and we we run away from Him rather than to Him? Is that you this morning? Running away from God, sulking? because of His chastening hand, angry at Him, because of what He has allowed in your life? I tell you this, if you would run to God instead of away from Him, you know, you would find Him to be like the prodigal's father, full of extravagant mercy and grace to all who humble themselves. Amen. But Israel hardened their hearts, and they continued to harden them more. And so verse fourteen says, So the Lord cut them off. He cut off Israel, head and tail, branch, uh, palm branch, and reed in one day. In a moment, as it were, he 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 brought desolation from front to back, from head to tail, from from top to bottom, from palm branch to to reed. Verse 15, the elder and the honored man is the head and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. I'm sure that felt good to those prophets. Verse 16, for those who guide this people have been leading them astray and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. This is exactly what unfolded in the years leading up to the Assyrian invasion. These people were increasingly uh, the subjects of foreign incursions that slowly decimated their population, especially the leadership of that land. And really the leaders that were left were increasingly ungodly and inept. Even their so-called prophets. God brought judgment upon them because of their ungodly leaders. But He gave just as much responsibility to those who were led by them, willing to follow these leaders. He kind of gave the people The leaders that they deserved, I guess. You know, I think that he can do that in any country, any country that persists in hardening their hearts against his warning and against his word. The Lord can do that in any church of people who turns away from hearing the Word of God only to desire for their ears to be tickled. and Maybe He gives them exactly what they want. Verse 17, Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over the young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, the anger of the Lord has not turned away and His hand is stretched out still. And it went on. Chastening after chastening from the hand of the Lord. Warning after warning. Decades of God's warnings went by. The 750s B.C., the 740s, the 730s, the 720s. One plague, as it were, after another from the hand of God's judgment. And still, they hardened their hearts. And so, God continued to stretch out His hand, His staff of justice and judgment upon this people. And the third section then shows us that part of God's judgment, part of God's judgment was actually to give these people over to their own self-consuming ways. Look at verse 18. For wickedness, the wickedness of these people, right? It burns like a fire. It consumes Briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a cloud of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. Wait a minute. I thought verse 18 says that the wickedness was what burned. It's their own wickedness that's setting the fire. And in verse 19, it says the wrath of the Lord is setting the fire. And the people themselves are fuel for that fire. The briars and thorns, this is Israel, and God is really giving them over to their own self-destruction, their own self-consuming wickedness. And notice that this is Israelite on Israelite exploitation. The end of verse 19 in the middle of verse 19, he says, at the end, he says, no one, no one in that land spares another. This is each one consuming the other. Each one turning on his neighbor and his brother. And in the judgment of God, their exploitation of one another would not give them any satisfaction. He says in verse 20, they slice meat on the right but are still hungry, and they devour on the left but are not satisfied. And look at this, and each devours the flesh of his own arm. What a grotesque picture, right? They're consuming of one another as part of the judgment of God was a consuming of themselves. And I tell you this, when you fight against God and you try to destroy your fellow man, you consume yourself. You bring destruction on your own head. You eat off your own arm, as it were. And God forbid, God forbid that there be a husband or wife here this morning who is eating your own arm off. Or what does the Scripture say that We are flesh of flesh and bone of bone, right? One flesh, as it were. Surely no one here has hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Right? Well, maybe maybe you need to get on your face before God and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for consuming my own one flesh union. And look at verse 21. He says, Manasseh devours Ephraim. And Ephraim devours Manasseh. You remember who these guys are? I mean, the fathers of these tribes? These were what? Their brothers, their siblings. These are the two sons of Joseph who inherited his portion in the north, brother on brother. Young people, young people, you who engage in sibling on sibling anger, lies, and jealousies, and selfishness that sacrifices everything for your own good, you're not guiltless. Verse 21, he goes on, Ephraim and Manasseh together, he says, they're against Judah. This is a whole family destroying itself through sin. And the judgment of God was that he unleashed these people upon each other and they suffered his chastening at their own hands, as it were. There is a kind of boomerang quality to sin, right? It comes back upon us. Don't ever be mistaken about the nature of sin. It always comes back, right? What you sow, you will. You sow to the flesh. You sow to the flesh. From the flesh. From the flesh. Now it's from God, but it's from your flesh. You will reap what? It'll just come right back on you. This is the way sin works, isn't it? And yet in verse 21, the end of the verse, we read once again that for all this, his anger had not turned away and his hand was stretched out still. And you just wonder to yourself, how long will they go on like this? How long will they persist? How long will a man fight against God? How long will a people destroy themselves? But in this final stanza in chapter 10 here, we see that they ignored God's chastening still and persisted in sin at the highest levels of society. Verse 1. Woe woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. This is the the evil kings of Israel and their administrators. And woe to the writers who keep writing oppression. Probably a reference to the king's counselors who drafted the decrees that he proclaimed. Woe to these who make such iniquitous decrees. Verse 2, and turn aside the needy from justice. And rob the people of the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they make the may make the fatherless their prey. This is what characterized that nation. And it's what characterizes a lot of nations today. Iniquitous decrees. Don't you think do you think that's a good characterization of a lot of the world that we live in? Iniquitous decrees. The kind of decrees that sentence a child to death for the convenience of its mother. The kind of decrees that tear apart one-flesh unions that God has joined together. The kind of iniquitous decrees that forbid a parent from helping their teen who is struggling with their sexuality kind of iniquitous decrees that place barriers upon the poor to keep them from getting justice. In verse 3, the Lord says, What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? Now he's making a clear reference to that Assyrian threat that will come from over the horizon and will be in in their historical moment the sort of ultimate judgment of God upon this people. What will you do in that day? Well, that's a good question. And I have no doubt that it was meant to cause these people to ponder a little bit. What will we do in that day? He says, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? And then, as now God's judgment comes upon men and nations, in verse 4 he says, nothing remains in that day, nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or to fall among the slain. The Lord's judgment would go on and on and on, his chastening, his warning, his pleadings would go on and on with these people, and yet they would they would go on to really persist in their hardness of heart, and so finally, you get to the end and the end of verse four, and we read once again, after this prediction of the Assyrian invasion and annihilation of this people, we read again for all this. His anger has not turned away and His hand is stretched out still. And I'm thinking, still? What more is there after the whole people is wiped out as a people? But you see, the judgment of God upon those people, like all of God's judgments, is meant to point us forward to that great eternal judgment before which all men will stand or fall. The, The judgment of their world was a preview of the judgment of the world. And God's hand is still stretched out against all who persist, who just persist in ignoring His chastening, His warning, His Word. And so I want to ask, what what will you do in the day of God's judgment? What will you do in the day of ruin? To whom will you flee for help in that day? Friends, in that day that Our idols will be of no use to us. Whatever idols we made for ourselves in this world, they're not going to help us in the day of the Lord. Our fleshly appetites will give us no satisfaction in that day. Our worldly companions will abandon us in the judgment of the Almighty Ruler of heaven and earth. There is no help in this world, right? Whatever we look to. Whatever we trust in. Isaiah goes on and makes this a theme in this book. Chapter 20, verse 6. He says, The inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help. What has happened to them? Where is our help? In chapter 30, verse 5. Everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit. In verse 7 he said, Egypt's help with this great other power that they look to is worthless and empty and in chapter 31, verse 1 he says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help or rely on horses and chariots. There is no help in all of the earth in the day when the Lord's strong arm is bared, but To those who repent and believe in the Lord's Messiah, He says in chapter 41, verse 10, Fear not, for I am what? I am with you. God with us. Amen? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with My righteous right hand. You see, our help is the Messiah. It is God with us. It is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. What Isaiah called, the one that Isaiah called the servant of the Lord who would suffer God's chastisement for the sins of His people so that they might be delivered from the curse and the anger of God and be brought into a land of plenty and be given the spoils of the kingdom for which their Savior lived and died. These people, and these people alone, receive help in that day when they stand before the judgment of God and they stand in the person of the Messiah. By faith and trust in the Savior who bled and died for their sins. By hope in His righteousness, in His perfect obedience to the God of heaven. Turn from your sin. Put your faith and trust, friend, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And His help, His help is coming to you now by way of His warnings. Right? By way of His chastening. By way of His fatherly discipline in your life. So, don't despise the discipline of the Lord, my friend. Don't be weary when reproved by Him. Don't be dismissive. Well, God has caused the bricks to fall, but... I'll just rebuild with dressed stones. They fell for a reason, right? And the reason was to get us to wake up and to say, God, what are you doing in my life? God, show me where I am fighting against you. God, receive me. I come back to you in humility. Don't be weary, friend, when reproved by God. Listen, His discipline will bear in your life the peaceful fruit of righteousness if if you allow yourself to be trained by it. You bow and pray with me for a moment, please. O Father, those of us who have known Your chastening and by Your grace have yielded to it, we have come to know the sweetness, the joy that's on the other side of that. Lord, we recognize though our ability to Fall back again into sin. To resist your word, to doubt you, to become angrier and bitter, to ignore you. So, Father, whatever you're doing in our lives today, whatever discipline you're bringing in the lives of your people, we pray. We pray that it may be effective. And really accomplish the good you intend to accomplish in all who are truly yours.